If somebody were to ask you, what comes to your mind when you hear the term forceful? Uh, if we were in nature, I think a lot of things, uh, we, we don't get a lot of lightning around, but we have the last couple of weeks. It's been kind of cool. I love lightning. Um, last night when I was going home, these bolts were coming down and reminded me of a, a season in my life years ago when I was a little kid and we were hauling some hay and um, we, we were just dumb and ignorant. We had no idea that when it, lightning comes, you're supposed to hightail it out of there and go inside. So we were out there looking at it and I, wow, isn't God cool? And then God just sent, I think he was smiling. He sent this lightning bolt, came down. It was probably 200 yards from us. It felt like 20 feet. And this bolt hit this tree and just wrapped the tree all the way down to the ground. Split that thing open. I was like, wow. Took it about 10 seconds and we got in the truck and flew out of there. It's like God means business. If, if, uh, that's forceful. It has an unbelievable power. I remember when Carrie and I were at Niagara Falls and we were one time at Iguazu Falls and we saw the water coming over and there's not a one of us that was ever tempted to say, hey, let's go for a swim. Why? Because that force of that waterfall would drive you straight to China. That thing had power. When you stand at the ocean, especially in the wintertime when it's all stormy and you're just like, you realize, man, the force of that thing is amazing. In nature, we don't look at force as something really negative. It can be, but it's really more, again, awe-inspiring. If you were to think of the term forceful in relation to people, what would come to your mind? I think maybe a lot of us would think a forceful person maybe is pushy. Maybe a little bit belligerent, maybe stubborn, kind of always want their way. When Jesus was describing John, his cousin, whom he loved, he used that term. It, it, the, the version that was used today used, translated the term violent. But actually, uh, another word that you might have it in your version, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there's not been one who has appeared to John the Baptist. That's what Jesus says. And then he says, from the days of John the Baptist, verse 12, until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful people lay hold of it. Whatever you and I think of the term forceful when it comes to people, Jesus thought of John. And when he thought of John, he thought of a person who had no peer. And secondly, it's the kind of person that moves the kingdom of God down the field. The implication is two things. Apart from forceful people, the kingdom of God is not going to advance. And secondly, implication is, if it takes forceful people, most likely there's going to be resistance. Probably wouldn't need forceful people if you didn't have resistance. I mean, if it was like water just downhill, it just goes, it would be fine. But, but Jesus is saying, there's something about John that is so unique, so descriptive, so powerful that he becomes Jesus's, if you will, archetype of the kind of person that he wants us to be. A forceful person 
forcefully advancing the kingdom of God. The interesting thing is that Jesus brings this up about his friend, John, his cousin, when John was maybe at his weakest moment. John was in prison. He wasn't doing well. The reason is because he had expectations that were unmet. And when expectations are unmet, it oftentimes, as it did with John, and it can with you, lead to disillusionment, depression, even to the point where Jesus warns, and this is a sobering warning, gives it to us in verse 6. He says, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. And he's saying that in the context of what's going on in John's life. What caused this forceful man to have this moment of intense weakness? It's because he had unmet expectations. What were they? Well, in John's mind, he had a lot of expectations. He did. They had to do with axe heads and winnowing forks. If you go back to Matthew chapter 3, there's a moment where John is interacting with some of the religious Pharisees, kind of the religious leaders, and John had one of those moments I think he delighted in. And he grabbed those guys whom he didn't like at all, and they didn't like him, because he was saying things like, you know, you brood of vipers and all of that stuff, and Jesus was saying the same thing. And so one day they came, and they were having a discussion, and John says to them, the axe head is coming down into the tree and it's going to cut it down. And they knew exactly what he meant. You Pharisees are the tree and Jesus is the axe. And let me tell you, at the end of the day, you're going over. And, and he loved that. He had another moment where he was kind of talking about the winnowing fork, this, this ability to go and to thrash through or thresh through and it would take the wheat and it would kind of sift through it and the chaff would blow away and the wheat would be preserved. And Jesus was saying, the guys, right now, you are at the top of your class. Everyone thinks you're the greatest re religious leaders in the world, but there's gonna come a day when the Messiah is gonna sift through all of your posing and pretense. John had these moments, kind of like I periodically do. I imagine that Jesus comes back on Air Horse One. <laughs> and he comes, and, and where I want Jesus to show up, to be quite honest with you, is Washington, D.C. It's on the East Coast. There are three hours ahead of us. I wanted to hit the news. And I want to hear that Jesus comes and whips down up to the White House and stands there and says, you brood of vipers. I don't know if I'm the only one. It seems like I'm maybe the only one that thinks this way. John did. And I imagine the day when all of the abuse of leadership and all of the political panhandling gets exposed and Jesus comes and he splits the house in two and he tells them no more are you going to abuse my people well that was a reality for John in fact that's the assignment that he was given 
And he would go around Jerusalem and he went around outside of Jerusalem and he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the axe head is going to come down on the tree and the winnowing fork is going to come. And John had everyone, everyone built up. And that's why they said when John was out in the Jordan, all of Jerusalem came out to see him. Why? Because man, the Romans were going to get it and the nation of Israel was going to be risen up and they were going to be victorious. That was his expectation. It wasn't turning out that way. John was in prison. Chapter 11, verse 2 says, When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples and he asked them, Hey, can you ask Jesus, are you really the one? Are you the one I've been expecting? Are you the one I've been preaching about? Now, mind you, John grew up with Jesus. He was only six months older than him. John was the one who was in the the Jordan River when the heaven broke open and and the Father spoke. And John was there when Jesus walked. And and John was the one who said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John is the one who said, "I, I am not worthy to wash your feet. What caused John to change? Probably the same thing that would cause you and me to change. And that is when we have prison pillows, it causes one to examine what they were expecting. We're like that. We are just like that. Some of us have expectations of what God will do and what church will be like and what marriage will be like and, and, and what our children will be like. And we have all of those expectations. And sometimes when those expectations aren't met, we don't look at ourselves. We tend to look at God and we tend to ask, God, are you really the one? Uh, God, did I understand you? God, why aren't you? That's exactly where John was at. Daniel Yanklovich wrote an article about a culture of people and he wasn't picking on Gen Z's and he wasn't picking on busters. He was picking on actually boomers, my generation. And he made the observation that prior to boomers in the entire world, life was hard and it was hard. One out of three children in the early 1900s did not make it past birth. The average lifespan in the United States in the early 1900s was 48 years of age. A good half of this congregation, you're dead if you lived in the early 1900s. My daughter, she's probably dead. My wife, preeclampsia, she was probably dead. It's a different culture. A couple of years ago, we all lost power for eight days and we realized what it was like to live 100 years ago, just a little bit. I went down to the creek and I was getting water for these dumb horses who drink a lot and because we didn't have power. And I was thinking to myself, horses, it's time for you to go on a fast from everything, food, water, just have at it, make life. And, and, and it struck me. It's like, man, this is what previous generations, this is what they did every day. Yanglovich says that the boomers, my generation, introduced what he calls the psychology of entitlement. We tend to blame, you know, the busters and the millennials. Sorry, millennials, you're off today. It's my generation. Why? Our parents loved us, but here was the mistake they made. They were the builders. You know what the mistake was? We do not want our children to struggle the way we did. 
Parents, if you ever make that commitment, repent. You want your kids to struggle. You want life to be hard. Otherwise, what? They will get exactly what Yanklevich talks about, the spirit of entitlement, which is what? Taking what previous generations thought were kind of privileges and begin to expect them as rights for your own personal life. We can move that into the church. No, we don't have expectations of winnowing forks, but you know what? A lot of people were taught that when you get married, if Christ is in you, you're going to have a great marriage. We were taught that if we trust Christ, our finances are going to rise. We were taught that if we raise our children in the church, they're all going to become missionaries, pastors, doctors, lawyers, or something noble. We were taught that if you go to church, it's going to be filled with really, really loving people who never fight, who always get along, and who view COVID and masks exactly the same way I do. We were taught, as one lady told me a couple weeks ago, I thought when I came to Christ, I thought when I believed in God, my addictions would lose their power. Most of us did not think that Christ was coming with an ax head. But I think a lot of us have failed to realize we were all raised or steeped in the psychology of entitlement. And when we bring that to God, those expectations are oftentimes unmet and can lead to disillusionment. We've seen it in our country in spades. If you go back to 2018 and you compare it today, 50% of people that attended church in the United States, not in, in our church, but in the United States, 50% of them have vacated. And they tell us that 35% of church leadership is going to vacate. Most of them already have. Why? Because life's hard. The church isn't always easy. A good marriage is actually difficult, even for God-fearing and spirit-filled individuals. Raising children don't, doesn't have the guarantees that we want. We want to take them to Awana. We want to raise them in church and they're going to have a great youth group. But the reality is, is they're still susceptible to living in this culture of entitlement. And they're still susceptible of turning God into that kind of Santa Claus that has to align with their commitment to pleasure, to financial gain, to relational health. We may not have prison pillows, but my friends, explain in other ways why 3,500 people on an average day walk out on the church. Explain why we have seen a 50% decline other than people have decided it's not what I expected. God's not what I thought he was like. The church isn't what I was hoping it would be. And marriage isn't quite as fulfilling as my youth pastor told me it was. 
Expectations unmet can often lead to disillusionment, even to people like John, whom Jesus said he has no peer. And yet Jesus says these, I think, sobering words, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. John is in prison, so he sends his disciples to Jesus and he says, hey, would you go ask Jesus, is he the real deal? Is he really the Messiah? I find that fascinating that he's asking Christ that. I would hope that Jesus would send back with the disciples, go back, tell John, yep, I'm the one. He doesn't. He doesn't at all. Jesus replies, gives us this response in verse 4. And he says, I want you to go back and I want you to report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Now, if I was John, I would hope before the period it came that he would also say, and the righteous get out of prison. It's what I would like. But he doesn't. What Jesus, I think, is telling John is two things. Number one, John, your problem is not that you're in prison. Your problem is that you have expectations that don't align with mine. Your problem is not that you have difficulty. Your problem is not that the church is a difficult place. Your problem is not that marriage takes a lot of work. Your problem is not that your kids sometimes rebel. Your problem is sometimes you have expectations that God hasn't agreed to. So what do we do? Christ says these expectations need to be adjusted. And if you are willing to adjust them, it will lead to a forcefulness in your life unparalleled by others, much like John. How do you do that? Number one, Jesus says you got to become a student of the word of God. In a weird way, I think Jesus gave John the highest compliment he could give. Uh, even maybe above that, there's not one born of a woman that exceeds John. Well, what did he do? He told his disciples, I want you to go back and I want you to tell John these things. The lame walk, you know, the blind see, and the gospel's being preached. Uh, what did he give him? He gave him the word of God. Isaiah 35, Isaiah 61. And what he told John is, John, I know you. We're cousins. We've hung around each other for 30 years. And there's one thing I know about John is he's a student of the word of God. And so what Jesus gives John is not the answer yes, which would have been very simple. He gave him the word of God and he said to John, John, take the things you're hearing about me and line it up to what you know about the word of God. And what do you find? Complete alignment. John, what you need to understand is your problem is not prison. You need to believe what you know. You need to believe the things that you've been raised with, the things that you've been taught, the things that you're preaching. You need to become a student of the Bible again, John. And I think Jesus so trusted John and so believed in his cousin that he gave him the word of God. Why? Because he knew at the very end, John would not falter from the word of God. And my friend, that's what you need to do. You need to, when those things come where life is not what you expected, you need to take yourself back and say, what is it that I believe? What is it that Christ teaches? This past week, 
dear brother asked me this question. He said, Pastor, what do you, how do you respond to persecution? I, eh, I don't get asked that every week. Just as soon not get asked that every week. I thought about it for a moment. I didn't want him to give him a half-baked answer. And I thought, well, you know what? It's interesting. As I thought about it for a moment, I just stood there with him. I said, it kind of depends on where I'm at. If I'm doing well, how do I respond to persecution? I expect it. I expect it because Jesus told me, in this world, you're going to have trials. You're going to have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus is the one who said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Expect it. Every day in hell, there's a strategy meeting and probably most of you, your name is written up at the top of the board where Satan is down there with few of his demons and trying to figure out how to get you off your game. Trying to figure out how to frustrate you. Trying to figure out how to threaten you. Trying to figure out anything how to bring despair to your life. If you will, it might be a mild case, but you're reenacting the life of Job every day. I think Job was a real person. I think it's a real story, but I think it's also parabolic. That the reality is your life is somehow wrapped up in this test that Satan says, the only reason why Mark praises you, God, is because you're good to him. Try him. Test him. And the enemy sits down there and says, ha, let's see what I can do. Now, I'm going to send Mark a sciatic nerve. Little, uh, it's a little twinge that makes a fire go up the back of his leg. And just see how much he can endure that without becoming a whiny baby. And maybe he'll say, you know what? I want to bring frustration to this. Or I want to bring this accusation. It doesn't matter. In answering my friend, I should expect it. Now, in all honesty, how many of us wake up every morning and say, today I'm going to be persecuted because Christ promised me that? No, I think you're probably a lot like me. When it happens, you're like, what? I don't deserve this, God. Why aren't you stronger? Lord, I prayed against this. I expect it. And if I understand what Jesus teaches, I delight in it. I delight that I am considered like Christ. If the enemy takes energy, he is not like God who is omniscient, all-powerful, unlimited. Satan is limited in sphere, limited in power, limited in scope, and limited in time. Therefore, he strategically looks for believers that he wants to come against that will do the most damage in the body of Christ. And if he comes against you, it ought to be, in a weird way, a delight to your heart that you use up some of the resources of hell on you. You ought to delight in the fact that there are people at your work who look at you and maybe are even threatened by your life, maybe annoyed at your life, and maybe the the fact that they mock you or they make fun of you in some way might actually be because your life looks like Christ. The question is, do you expect it? And do you delight in it? And do you endure it with trust and faith?
You see, my expectations have to be adjusted to lead to a forcefulness. And I do it because I am a student of the Bible and I do it because I have to commit my life to the alignment of my life to the will of God. Blessed is the one who does not fall away. Who when Christ calls you to literally take up your cross, as he says that that's going to be the metaphor of your life, you're going to bear a cross And that when he calls you to do that, do you gladly pick that up? Or like John, do you say, is there an easier path? Is there another way? Because my image of the Messiah is victory and Jewish leaders getting the ax head at their trunk. When I look at life in the church, Am I honest about it and realistic about it? That when God says in Ephesians chapter four to bear up with one another, you have to bear up with people, not because they're easy, but because they're difficult. In Colossians chapter three, verses 12 and following, he says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, I want you to clothe yourselves every day with kindness, gentleness, and compassion. And he does that, why? Because later he says, and I want you to forgive whatever grievances people have or have done against you. Forgive people just the way Christ forgave you. Is that your commitment to this body? Is that your commitment to your family? You see, if I'm going to be a forceful person, a person who has aligned their heart to the will of God, then I have to be a person who expects to be persecuted, expects that I'm going to need to forbear with people, expects that I'm going to have to forgive people and people are probably going to have to forgive me. Because if I know, the consequences might be that I fall away, that I walk out on the church, Whether some of you walk out on your marriage because it's just too hard. It's hard. It's hard to forgive. It's hard to be humble. It's hard, gentlemen, to lay your life down for your wife the way Christ laid his life down for you. But that's what he expects. And I've never seen in the scripture or anywhere else that Jesus apologizes for that. But if I don't expect that, then when I hit the white waters, when it becomes difficult, I may be like John. Is there another alternative? Jesus, are you really the one? Expectations adjusted leads to forceful kingdom builders. And a forceful life leads to an energized and passionate obedience. John gets word back from the disciples. This is what Jesus said. You don't really hear from John again about that issue. If you were to flip over in the gospels in Matthew to the 14th chapter or in Mark to the 6th chapter, you're going to hear that John is speaking again. What is he doing? 
bringing a word of correction and judgment and obedience to a leader and to his wife. He's calling them out. He's back to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. My king is here and he's going to bring an axe head to the trunk and he's going to expose your unrighteousness. John is one of the most powerful and energized individuals. It cost him his life, by the way. He died in a way I sure hope I don't have to. He was beheaded. But he never faltered. And he lived one of the most powerful lives known to mankind. Why? Because forceful people are those whose expectations of Christ's kingdom match our Lord's desires. And if my heart matches our Lord's desire, then we in this state will move the kingdom of God forward. We will press it forward. But only forceful people can do that. A former criminal church leader in Russia was reflecting on a time when he served in prison And it was in prison that he met some people, I would call them, Jesus would call them forceful people. Here was his insight. He says, among the general despair, while prisoners like myself were cursing ourselves, the camp and the authorities, while we often opened our veins or our stomachs and hanged ourselves, the Christians, often with sentences of 20 to 25 years, did not despair to a person. One could see Christ reflected in their faces. Their pure, upright life, deep faith and devotion to God, their gentleness and their wonderful manliness became a shining example and the very thing that drew me to place my faith in Christ. My guess is most of us in this room are not going to serve in a Russian prison. Hopefully not even an American one. But my friends, you are birthed and raised in the culture and the psychology of entitlement. And it has touched the American church as deeply as it has anyone in the world. We're set up for it. We're set up for this disappointment. And we need to hear the words of Christ again. Take up your cross and come follow me. Move into the church. It's thorny, it's prickly. Not everyone there is perfect like you. They're gonna need you and they're gonna need your sacrifice. They're gonna need your forgiveness. And I want you to take a wife. I want you to receive a husband and I want you to enter into that relationship. And at times that relationship, man, I'll tell you, it's gonna be like sandpaper. It's gonna grate on you and you're gonna have to come home at night and realize, God, if I don't humble myself before you, I'm never gonna make it. And he says, yes. It's the reason why I gave you this wife. I wanna humble you and I wanna shape you. And you're going to go to work. And you're going to get a boss that doesn't have your values. In fact, sometimes you're going to think your boss is trying to get you put in prison. And so then you have to ask yourself the question, what do I expect? 
Now, what do I want? What do I really expect? And you can hear Christ say, go tell Mark. Go tell Jim. Go tell Sarah. I'm going to lead people to Christ in the state of Oregon. I'm going to bring the gospel right into the state offices and right over to the hospital. And I'm going to bring the gospel. I, I, I may not make it an easy path. And some of you, actually, if you will proverbially, might lose your head. But what you have to do is you have to align your heart with the expectations of Jesus. And if you do, and when you do, you might be singing in prison. You might be having the delight of joy in the most difficult place. And there might be somebody like Mr. Kaslov who watches you and says, that is someone I want to become like. And when you do, God will look at you and say, forceful people are taking hold and moving the kingdom forcefully down the road. Be that, be that person.